Hello to you wherever you are. Uh, I hope that you are doing well. Uh, I'm going to be recording a sermon from home this morning. We've had a little bout with the coronavirus, but hopefully we're almost finished. Um, so we'll be uh, having at least one remote sermon before we can get back together in person. I do uh, very much look forward to that. Um, but this morning we are going to begin a study uh, that will take us through the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis, or really just to chapter 12, verse 4. Um, we're going to be looking at the beginning stories of the world. And uh, I've titled this sermon series, Setting the Record Straight. To me, that's very important, especially now in our current society. So many people seem to think, uh, that they can define how the world started, they can define other aspects of God's creation, and it's very important for us to understand that God is creator, he is the king of creation, his design set down the natural law for us, and it is a law that we must follow. Genesis is it's one of the most important books of the Bible, it tells the beginning of all things, and because of that, it's basic to everything that we know as far as Christians. It sets forth the truths uh, that really inform every other theological decision we make. Every Christian ought to put the, uh, the message of Genesis, especially the first 12 chapters, every Christian ought to put that message in their heart. And so that's something that we're going to try to do as we get forward or go forward. Now, there are four beginnings, if you will, in the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And so we'll be kind of looking at those. Um, this will be kind of a loose outline for how we go about uh, our study. Uh, the first beginning is the beginning of the world by creation. And obviously that's what we'll be looking at this morning as we see how God created the world and mankind. This is basic uh, because apart from creation there would be no need for the Bible at all. Uh, there would be no creatures who needed creation. So obviously God had to create the world. But also we're going to see the beginning of sin this is a very sad chapter in human history for sure. Um, we're going to see the beginning of salvation, which immediately follows the beginning of sin. And then we will see the beginning of God's special people. That's Israel. And so as we go through this, those are the things that we're going to be looking for. One question that people tend to have about Genesis is, is it actually historical? Was it intended to be history when it was written? Um, is it something that we can trust? Uh, kind of the, the popular thought nowadays is that it is a collection of Hebrew myths that explain their understanding of the creation of the world and even they didn't believe that it was true. Um, but that doesn't hold up when we look at the text itself. Um, when we read the, uh, the Genesis account, uh, it is not written as a collection of stories or myths without 
context or without a basis in reality. Uh, they use words that move on the story, such as next and then, um, all sorts of words that, that help to advance a historical narrative, which is what Genesis presents itself to be. Um, another thing is that there are uh, a couple of different times, five times, that it uses the phrase, these are the generations of. Um, these are the records of uh, families. As, as we go through, we see Adam down through uh, multiple generations of his families, but also it talks about certain um, stories or certain events, and these are the generations of those events. Um, again, laying it down as history, not as some kind of myth. Um, here's just some interesting stats about Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, in Genesis 1 through 11, 64 geographical terms uh, are mentioned, 88 personal names, 48 generic names, and at least 21 identifiable cultural terms. Um, so these are things that suggest that the author was describing the world of men not a world of prehistory or a world beyond history. Um, another evidence that this is really uh, God's history of creating the earth is that each divine judgment that he passes out is immediately followed by an exhibition of grace. And so when we see Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, immediately there is a promise for redemption. Noah and his family, right after the flood, there is the uh, covenant with the rainbow. Um, when we look at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 and mankind being scattered, uh, their languages being confounded, right after that is the call of Abraham. Uh, so all these people that have been scattered and separated it is through this family of Abraham that they will all be blessed. Another thing that's very important for us to remember is that the rest of Scripture entirely regards the Genesis account as uh, man's early beginnings. Um, it, it is not treated as myth or legend. All throughout the Old and New Testament it is referenced, and it is referenced as historically reliable. So you have to deal with the fact that um, the whole Bible thinks that Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is, is true and real and historically reliable if you want to say that it's not, because then that brings into question the rest of Scripture. Um, the genealogies, uh, the ones in First Chronicles, the one uh, in Luke chapter 3, both regard Adam as the first man. They don't leave any question or any doubt about that. And so certainly if there was a time to say, hey, this is a myth, we know that Adam was a myth, but really we're going to start with Abraham or somebody like that, that would have been the time. But neither of these uh, genealogies do that. Instead, they begin with Adam. Finally, there's the integrity of Jesus's teaching um, in Matthew chapter 19 verse 4 and 5 and Mark chapter 10 verse 6 through 4 he refers to the creation of man in such a way that it is beyond question that he had Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 and chapter 2 verse 24 in mind um, he treated the Genesis account as historically reliable and so it calls into question his own integrity that is that's too much. We have to trust that this is not a myth. These are not legends. These are not just the best Hebrew idea of the day of how the world came into being. This is God's message of how he began the world. 
couple other things of introduction before we get into the text. Um, because of current scholarship, we need to talk about what the word day means. Okay, so in scripture, um, in the first chapter of Genesis, it tells us that on the first day, uh, God created, uh, and it goes through uh, six days of creation and one day of rest. So what does this word day mean? Um, it's been kind of common lately to doubt um, that it is that it means seven 24-hour days. That would be the literal day theory or the literal day interpretation. As you read the text, you see words like day and morning and evening. You assume that he's talking about seven 24-hour days, which would be 144 hours of creation. That's that's the most literal way to read scripture, most literal way to interpret it. Um, and the only weakness, if people want to call it a weakness, is the fact that it flies in the face of the current scientific theory that the Earth is somewhere uh, in the neighborhood of 4.5 billion years old. Now, this is based on evidence drawn from radiometric dating of rocks, uh, the rate of cooling of magmic bodies, the rate of fossil reef formation, things like that. Um, so as they look at the world, they see an older world. Um, so that obviously creates some issues for some people. So as they try to come up with different interpretations, one is the gap theory, that there is a gap between Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 2, that God had created a perfect world, Satan's fall ruined that world, God left the world dormant for millions of years, um, and then he began to take up creation. Now, <clears throat> there are some issues with this. There are people that believe this, but there are some issues. Uh, and in verse 2, um, we see uh, that it says that the world was far formless and void. Um, in Hebrew, there is a word for was and there is a word for became. If the world became uh, this formless and void, then that would be a little bit different issue. But it does say that it was that. So, this theory uh, is on uh, shaky ground. It, 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 it honors science, but kind of rejects the language of God. Um, the day-age theory uh, is that each day was not necessarily intended to be uh, considered as a 24-hour time period, but rather an age. Um, this does kind of in keep with science that, that the world is older than, a, you know, 10,000, 20,000 years old. Um, but you do have to explain how the world could live for an age on day three where there is plants and vegetation and all of that and no sunshine until day four. Um, so that would then be uh, a little bit of the, the problem there. Um, another term would be uh, revelatory days. Um, in other words, these were visions given to Moses, and on day one he saw the vision of God creating um, you know, the heavens and the earth, and and on down through it, you know, where he sees the creation of vegetation, he sees the creation of the beasts of the field, he sees the creation of man, and these are successive days of his vision, and so then that's how he choose, chose to present that. 
And along that same line, um, St. Augustine argued for literary days that as Moses was putting down this record, he just chose to present it in days. Um, he chose to go one day, one, one aspect of creation, the next day, another aspect of creation. Um, it's not necessarily chronological, um, and it's not necessarily an account of how many hours God invested in creation, but simply a literary device useful in presenting the ideas of what happened, why it happened, and what difference it makes uh, that this happened. So, this view does you know, resolve some of the tension that, that science and, and the text have with each other. Um, but when you look at Genesis 1 and you actually read the words on the page, which is a really big part of studying the Bible, it does say morning and evening. It does say days. Um, if, we, if we were to understand this to be some kind of part of a day, or if we were to understand this to be uh, some some gap between the days, if we were to understand this as any way other than a literal reading of the text, we're going to have to get creative. And so we don't want to be creative. God did that. We're going to read all about God's creation. And so let us focus on the truth. Uh, what seems to be the truth here is that God made the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. That's the view that we're going to take going forward. Now, very briefly, we do have to talk about the age of the earth. Um, you know, the Genesis account doesn't tell us the age of the earth. It doesn't tell us um, the the age of the rest of creation, universe, and things like that. Um, but when you put all the numbers and things together, um, it looks like um, the earth couldn't be more than seven, eight, ten thousand years old. Kind of a liberal um, understanding, maybe somewhere in the twenty thousand year range, but nothing like that. And when you look at history, when you just look at uh, and, and history defined by man's own record of his existence. Uh, prehistory is before man was leaving a record. Uh, history is man leaving a record. When you look at that all over the world, uh, you start seeing evidence of mankind pop up uh, at about 5000 BC. 4000, 5000 BC is the first evidence of mankind. Yet, we say that we, we that humans and humanoids have been around for you know millions of years it doesn't seem to make sense. Um, we leave a mark everywhere we go, yet now, um, and, and in fact, we think that we've destroyed the climate in, in the span of about a hundred years, but yet mankind lived on this earth for thousands and thousands of years without leaving a single mark, a single evidence of our existence before that. It doesn't seem to make sense. Now, when people say that the earth must be um, very old, four and a half billion years old or something like that, here are some things to consider. Um, the receding moon. Uh, tidal friction related to the moon's gravitational pull is slowly uh, spinning the, the or slowly um, reducing the Earth's spin rate. Um, according to the laws of physics, angular momentum is being transferred to the moon, causing it to move slowly away from the Earth. Those same laws show that the moon could never survive being more than 11,500 miles from the Earth. <coughs> no, they could, it could never survive being nearer than 11,500 miles from the Earth. 
um, because inside that limit, the Earth's gravitational pull would actually um, break up the moon into smaller pieces. It would result in something looking like the rings of Saturn at that particular point. Um, so if you if you do kind of the backwards uh, math on this, um, what we would see is that if if the moon had started and only 11,500 miles away from us, and it's like 100,000 miles away from us now, a little more than that. Um, if, it, if it was that close to us, even at the very beginning, over 4.5 billion years, it would have traveled much, much further away from us than it is now. Another thing that, that, that's kind of interesting is the uh, as far as the moon goes and helping us to understand the age of the Earth, um, before the lunar landing, um, scientists were worried about the depth of dust that would have been on the moon. Um, over 4.5 billion years, the, the rock slowly turning into sand, what they were afraid of is when they landed, it was going to be like a, a form of quicksand of just dust. They did not know how deep that dust layer would be. Uh, the astronauts reported only a very thin layer of dust when they got there, um, which indicates that maybe the moon is not as old as we would think that it was based on science's understanding of the age of the Earth. Also, worth pointing out um, is that the moon surface is not nearly as damaged by meteorites as you would think it would be if it's been hanging around uh, just in the solar system for 4.5 billion years. Um, there are many other things to kind of look at. Um, I will mention simply um, the Hubble telescope. The Hubble telescope has provided data that suggests the universe is between 8 and 12 billion years old. Um, this seems impressive, uh, and it does seem to be kind of something that you can rely upon, but it definitely upsets a certain group of astrophysicists. And the reason is they have dated stars in the Milky Way galaxy, our own galaxy. They've dated those stars between 14 and 16 billion years old, meaning that there are stars in our galaxy older than the universe itself. That doesn't quite add up. Maybe these stars existed before the rest of the universe, or maybe they're interpreting all the data wrong. And that's what I tend to believe. Um, that when we look at science, it is just theories. But when we read scripture, when we read Genesis chapter 1, we are reading God's own account of how these things came to be. And so that, to me, is where we're going to, that's what we're going to believe. That's how we're going to treat that to be true and reject the other ideas of mankind. So, that brings us to the sermon in a sentence. The sermon in the sentence is this. Our God is creator and king of the universe, and his design for life is the law of life. We're going to trust God's plan, we're going to trust God's design, and we're going to obey the order that he has created for this earth. That's how we're going to look at it. Okay, so I'm about to read to you Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 1 through, actually Genesis chapter 2, verse 3. Um, so Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm above uh, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth uh, across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the bird of the heaven, and over the livestock, and all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. 
And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with it, with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Okay. So, as we look at this, uh, we're going to break it up into to three parts. Two parts as far as what the scripture says, and a third part that's kind of lessons we can learn from this. So, first of all, we'll start with um, the world and all that is in it. Um, you know, the Bible begins where it has to begin, with creation. Before God created anything, God existed alone. Uh, his uh, eternal or he is eternal without uh, beginning, without end. Um, but God chose to create something. This something was the universe, everything that we know. Um, it includes our planet. It includes mankind. Uh, and had there been no creation, there would be no earth uh, and no men, therefore no need for a Bible. Um, this initial section here introduces two main subjects of Scripture. God is the creator and man his creature. Um, uh, in it, eight works of creation are prompted by ten divine commands and executed in six different days. So that's how we'll look at it. So, beginning with the initial creation, uh, Genesis 1-1 seems to be an opening statement of the initial act of creation of the whole universe followed by an account of the ordering of the different parts of the universe as it was created. So when he says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, uh, this phrase includes not only planet earth, but all other heavenly bodies as well. Uh, God did not um, uh, just allow these things to happen out of blind chance. Um, God created out of nothing. Um, the, the, the theological term for this is uh, creatio ex nihilo, um, and it, it is this, this picture of God creating out of absolutely nothing. Things came into existence because of his divine command. Um, you know, if this verse was the only verse that was available to us, we would at least have a good start to a biblical worldview. We would know that God was the creator. If that's all we had, that would be enough to at least look to him as our God rather than looking to science for answers to questions that have already been answered. You know, another thing that Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 does is it eliminates the possibility of atheism. Atheism is this idea that there is no God, but in the very beginning, God created. And so it does just defeat this idea that there is no God. Um, it, it, 
it assumes the existence of God. It denies materialism, uh, for it asserts that there was a time when matter simply didn't exist. It denies pantheism, uh, for it shows God existing before and apart from all the other things. Um, it also denies fatalism, for it affirms the free action of God in, begin, in beginning a new course of action. So this was not determined by any other course or any other person. This was determined by God to create. Um, so as we get into this, we definitely want to look at the days, um, but we will go through that kind of quickly because to a certain extent, um, it, it, would, it would seem to be self-explanatory what's what's going on here. Um, we will point out in Genesis chapter 2 that the earth was without form. It was uh, void. Darkness was everywhere. Um, there is the idea that there was some cataclysmic uh, event, maybe Satan's fall, um, something like that, but the text really doesn't offer any evidence of that. Um, the earth simply was formless and void, um, and, and God basically from this blank canvas or chaotic canvas created the world. So out of creation or out of chaos, he made uh, creation. The Spirit of God began to move over the face of the water. That means that the powerful presence of God moved mysteriously over the initial creation's void conditions. Um, God the Father planned creation. God the Son affected creation, as we learn in John uh, and Colossians. And God the Spirit brought creation to its completion. We see all of this in Scripture. So as we look at these days... Um, each uh, day, it, it shows progress from the lowest forms of existence to the highest forms of existence. And then on the seventh day, God rested from his finished work and blessed all that he had done. When we look at uh, Genesis 1, verse 3 through 5, we see the first day of creation. And on that day, God dispelled darkness by creating light. So as we look at this... Uh, God calls light to shine from a source other than the sun for the first three days because it's on day four that God actually creates the sun. Um, also, something that's interesting here, uh, not only does God create light, but he creates time because it says there is morning and evening, and there had not been that before. So God uh, created time at this particular point. So, in day two, we see that God uh, made a proper atmosphere for the earth uh, so that plants could live and man and animals could thrive. Therefore, this um, apparently a cloud or a fog. Uh, so, before this, there was a cloud or a fog uh, condition that existed all over the planet, but God divided the vaporous water of the atmosphere from the liquid water of the earth. This division between the clouds and land <coughs> water is called the firmament in some translations, um, but that seems to suggest something uh, solid, but the idea here is, is not a, a, a solid, but more of a, a separating. Uh, day three is when we get our plants, uh, vegetations, um, things like that. Um, he separates the water from the land, uh, raising land masses above the sea so that he creates dry ground. Uh, and on this, on this dry ground, he called that earth, the gathered waters, he called them seas. Um, this is, interestingly enough, the last time in the creation narrative that God names anything after this point. Uh, it is man that 
uh, is going to be naming things. Uh, he'll give that responsibility to mankind. So, um, God provided for the plant life. He commanded the ground to bring forth all of these things. Um, and everything was ordered. You know, you had your you had your leafy greens, you had your seed-bearing plants, you had your fruit-bearing plants, and God gave commands to all of those things to continue to grow and to continue to reproduce. When we look at day four, uh, day four is the the God formed the light bearers. That's going to be the sun. That's going to be the moon. That's going to be the stars. Now, it's at this point some people might say, hey, but we know that the moon doesn't give off light. It is only a reflection of the sun. And yes, we know that now because of tons of scientific study and um, all, all, all the different research that has been done. Um, but the Bible, and this is important, the Bible was written to always be understood always. So from the earliest people that would have had an opportunity to read the Bible all the way to today, it has been written so that it will be understood. So even though we know the moon doesn't put off light, the ancient Hebrews may not have, but in the Bible it tells us that there is light coming from the moon, and when you look at the moon at night, you cannot deny that reality. There is light coming from it. If that is a reflection or if it is the source of light, that's something that, that, that we can talk about a little bit more. Now, as we look at this, um, you know, we know that the sun was often worshipped as its own deity. The moon was worshipped as a deity. Different stars were worshipped as deity. People have tried to, to worship these things, but God created them for a purpose. They are under the dominion of God to provide light. Those, those luminaries in the sky are simply there to do what God told them to do. Now, when we look at day five, God has created all of the fish or ocean creatures, water creatures. By the way, it's important to point out that we still haven't discovered all these things that God created. Um, you know, we've pretty much seen all the things that fly in the sky, but we haven't seen all the things that swim underneath the water. And so that's an interesting thing, but God created all of this, um, the, the, the birds and the swimming creatures after their kind. Um, so it does say sea monsters and large, you know, large uh, sea creatures and things like that. Um, and, you know, without getting too deep into conversations like Loch Ness and things like that, God has created things um, that I believe mankind has not yet seen. Uh, his, his creative ability extends far beyond our cognitive understanding. And so I think that's worth pointing out there. So as we kind of turn the page to day six, we're also going to kind of change a little bit about what we're talking about. Um, because day six is creations of the beasts of the field, but it is also creation of mankind. And so we're going to talk about mankind and all of his forms here as we look at what the Bible says. When we see, first of all, it's easy to tell that day six was the busiest day of creation. God created more on this day than any other day. Uh, he created animals, uh, and this is after their kind. Um, so the idea was, you know, cows with cows, horses with horses, on down the line, that was the idea. It was animals after their own kind. Uh, with each of these, he, he made them to be fruitful and to multiply. That's how the, 
the uh, creative order goes. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That's the idea through all of it. Now, when God begins to talk about the creation of humanity, he takes on a different way of speaking. He says, let us... Um, so, in, in, when he's talking about uh, animals, he says, let the earth bring forth. Uh, but when he talks about mankind, he says, let us make. Um, so, there's two things about that. Obviously, you notice the plural there. Um, we're just going to mention that in passing because throughout Scripture, it's obvious that God exists as a trinity in three and one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all involved in creation. Um, the Bible tells us their different parts and their different roles during that. Um, so that's important for us to just to be aware of. The second thing is that while the earth brought forth the beasts of the field and the creeping things and all that, God himself made mankind. And that is important because mankind is the crown jewel of all of creation. And we need to know that. Uh, we need to understand the value that we have. We need to understand the purpose that God had uh, when he made us. We need to understand the level of control God had when he made us. Okay, so it's very important for us to understand that. The second thing is that it says that let us make man in our image, as our likeness. Um, in most of the cultures that would have been kind of current with when you could have read Genesis for the first time, uh, the Egyptian cultures, the uh, Mesopotamian cultures, things like that, typically it was the king or some high-ranking person that was known as the image of God. But what we find laid out here in Scripture is that all mankind, man and women, they are created in the image of God. We all bear the image of God, not just kings, but every one of us. Um, uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 clearly does not define the content of these terms, meaning what, what does this actually mean? They just simply suggest that the human is to bear the image of God. Um, something can be known about God as we study humanity. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 not only spells out man's relationship to the creator, that we were created in his image, it also spells out our relationship with the rest of created order. We are to exercise dominion over the other living creatures. We are to be a master uh, over creation. We are to be an administrator. We are to be a king. We are to be a shepherd. Uh, man is created to rule. Um, not in an exploit, exploitative way, but in a compassionate way. Um, later, as a first demonstration of his superiority, Adam was commanded to name all the animals. That's, that's the way that things go. Now, here's something that is being preached and talked about all over the country this morning. God created man and woman. He did not make mistakes. He did not leave things out in between. God created man and woman. And they were told to be fruitful and multiply. When we look at that very simple statement and very simple command, it becomes clear that God intended for there to be two genders. And he also intended for those genders to pair up with their opposites and to be fruitful and multiply. 
we have a world today in which they want to define gender. They want to say that they can be male when they were born female. They want to say that they are female when they were born male. They want to choose some uh, place in between the two, although God never created a place in between male and female. They want to find something on a spectrum, so to speak. Um, that is not biblical. Biblical humanity, biblical gender identity is male or female as God created you to be. It cannot get more simple than that. Now, when it comes to sexuality, people want to partner up with their same gender. People want to live a life that the Bible calls in other places an abomination. And let me make it very clear. God created male and female so that we could be fruitful and multiply. Homosexual relationships are not fruitful. They do not multiply in the God-ordained way. And so they are not biblical. It is just that simple. No matter what you hear from the news outlets, no matter what people say is a compassionate way to live, we must make it abundantly clear that transgenderism goes against God's created order, that homosexuality goes against God's created order, period. Let's look at a final word on creation here. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, uh, we see that everything to do with the universe, all of its company, so to speak, was created. Uh, it was finished. It was complete. Um, God had done everything that needed to be done for all of creation to be finished. Um, this is called God's work. Um, and that word work has to do with like skilled laborer or an artisan or a craftsman, something along that line. Um, God used great skill and talent in creating. And so that's something that we um, need to be aware of. This is where God creates the Sabbath day. He sets it apart for himself and he makes it holy. Do we really think that God was tired after six days of creation? No, we do not. But he chose this day as a day to rest and to remember him, to remember uh, his creative work. And so it is important for us to recognize that that is part of God's created order. It is a law that he gave, and it is a law that must be obeyed. Six days shall you labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest, and you shall reflect on God the creator. Now, there's a couple of truths here that emerge, some things that we need to point out. Um, one thing, before anything else was, God was. He is without peer. He is without competitor. There is no other God. Everything else is something that someone has made up or something that someone has misunderstood entirely. Number two, God made everything else that exists there is nothing that exists that God himself did not make, so we need to be aware of that. There are no other origin stories. There are no other gods that created other things. All of this is God's creation. Number three, more than creator, God is also the lawgiver. He has set the order for things, and that order is binding. So when we talk about the way that life should be lived, we must obey the plan that God himself set forth for us. That is law. Another thing, creation is effortless. God simply spoke the worlds 
uh, God simply spoke and the worlds exploded into existence. Number five, creation was an expression of God's will. He called forth all of these things by his own choice. Um, this was not something he was forced to do. This was not something that he needed to do. He chose to do it by his own free will. Number six, everything that God made is good. When God saw creation, he always said that it was good. When he finished creating mankind and everything else in it, he saw that it was very good. And finally, number seven, man is God's supreme creation. That is something we must recognize. Everything in the account leads up to the creation of man as the crown of creation. Mankind alone is made in God's image. He alone is like God. For modern man, this is an important an issue uh, as any because the materialistic concept of uh, a chance parade from, from atom, A-T-O-M, to atom, A-D-A-M, uh, has stripped mankind of his uniqueness. Uh, as he looks out in this world, he cannot tell himself uh, from what he faces. He cannot distinguish himself from other things. Uh, in contrast, the Christian creationist does not have this problem. He knows who he is. Although machines and animals can do some of the things humans cannot do, uh, men are basically different. God made both man and the rest of the universe, but he made man different from the rest of the universe. This is an important point. We are created special. We were made different. When we look at the rest of the world and we value the rest of the world, it is God's creation. It is holy because of that. But we are created differently. We are special. And just to point out how special we are. God made man as his own representative. We represent God here on this earth. Man can have a personal relationship with God. No other earthly creature can say this. Man is also responsible to God. We are responsible to rule over creation. We are responsible to obey God's laws. How can we have a personal relationship with God? Most of us have read ahead. We know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. We know that we sin. We fall short of God's glory. We're separated from Him. That relationship is severed. Well, we also have read far enough ahead to know that God sent His Son, Jesus. So all this work that God did in creation, we tried to undo it through sin, and God reestablished His love for us. God reestablished His relationship with us through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When we look at creation, we are looking at the beginning of God's redemption of mankind. Even before we were formed out of the dust of the earth, God planned to redeem us because he loves us. And so it is important for us to remember this at all times. We are God's creation. We are made in God's image. We have been redeemed by God's Son, and we will live eternally with God. We spend so much of our time focused on other things, other people, other plans, other designs, but we need to center our lives on God because He is at the center of all creation. 
even the formation of us as humankind. So I want to leave you with that. I want us to think about that very carefully. Uh, the world wants to redefine creation. It wants to redefine gender. It wants to redefine every aspect of humanity because that's all part of the rebellion that comes from sin. But God made us a certain way, a special way. He wants us to live forever with him. He sent his son Jesus to die for us, but we cannot rebel against his created order. Thank you for being here. I know that was a little bit long, but uh, thank you for listening to it. And I pray uh, that it is an encouragement in this morning where sometimes everything seems to be all confused and chaotic. God is in control. He has created. He has placed order. And as we follow that order, we will be following him. And as we follow him, we will find peace. We will find happiness and we will find eternal life.